you got your Bibles, go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Well, Happy New Year. Um, thankful to be here this morning with you all. And one of the things that we see in the text throughout this study in Philippians is the idea of rejoicing and being grateful, being thankful. It's not just a, a seasonal idea in the life of a Christian. We're, we're called by God to live in a state of rejoicing. And now, I want you guys to see this, because we are called to live in a state of rejoicing, but I want you to see that and understand that he doesn't say to have a state of happiness. It's, it's rather, it's rejoicing. Joy is the state that we are to be in. Happiness and joy are two different things. Happiness is based upon circumstances, right? I mean, there's a lot of youngsters in here that got excited and were happy at Christmas. Maybe, maybe some of them weren't, but some, most were happy in the, because it was based upon the circumstances. But if you change some of the circumstances, then people can lose their happiness very quickly. You get a phone call, your happiness can end pretty fast, right? Joy, joy is based upon, biblical joy is based upon Christ and His work in our hearts and in our lives. And so... What I want us to do is look at Philippians chapter 3 and see from the text God's idea on how we are to be as Christians in 2023 as we start out this new year and we continue our journey of faith, what we're supposed to do. So he writes, Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 3 and the first thing he says right out of the gate, he says, finally brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord is his first thing he says out of this, this, this beginning of the chapter. He says this again. He'll, he'll repeat himself again in, in chapter 4 and, and say this idea of, of rejoicing. But it's not just rejoice in circumstances or rejoice in your job or rejoice in the new year. He says what? Rejoice specifically in something very concrete. Re rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He, he is very clear here that the theme of rejoicing is in the light of who the Lord is. And this is what's at play. This is, this is the circumstances. This is the sphere of the rejoicing that is to take place in a believer's life. Is that we as Christians are to rejoice specifically in the Lord. And, and the sphere of how our joy exists is based upon not our circumstances, but based upon who Jesus is. I've been in so many different rooms with so many different men and women who have loved Jesus and had dire news handed to them, whether it's cancer, whether it's the death of a loved one, whether it's a traumatic event that's taken place. And in the midst of their dire news, yes, they may be sad in the moment, but the light of eternity shines bright from their faces and out from their lives because they understand that this place is not our home. Amen? Like, listen, you and I, we are not, this is not a permanent thing. I said this Friday at the funeral that I preached. I said, this is not our permanent home. 
This is not our permanent home, and we've got to stop treating planet Earth as if this is the end-all, be-all. This isn't home-home. I'll never forget that two weeks before Dad passed, we went to go eat McDonald's. Maybe that may have been the thing that launched him off. I don't know. But we went to go have McDonald's, and we're sitting there. We hadn't even, he hadn't even got his Big Mac yet, yet, and he goes, I want to go home, Reed. I said, Dad, you haven't even got your food yet. He goes, no, I'm not talking about it. I want to go home, home. I want to go home, home. We've got to remember that this place is not our home. We're, we're in essence, this is, this is like we're in a hotel and we treat this thing like it's our permanent house. We, we have such a grim look on life. And a, a, if you, I, I'll, never think, I'll never forget this story. There was a man who received good news. He received news, and this was a story back in the 1600s. He received this good news that he had, he had inherited an inheritance. He was part of, he was given a massive inheritance. And he gets in his wagon and he drives his wagon out with his horse-drawn carriage in there. He's heading down the road to go, find, to go meet with the people to get his inheritance. And on his way to his inheritance, on the way to this thing, the wagon wheel falls off of his wagon and he gets off the wagon and he wrings his hands and he puts his hands in his head and he just says, oh, my wagon wheel, my wagon wheel. Oh, my goodness, my wagon wheel. Oh. And he loses sight. He's, he's just sobbing with anguish and sorrow over the fact that he had just lost his wheel of his wagon. And he climbed out of the wagon, down to the ground, and his hands in his head, and he's just inconsolable over the loss of his wagon wheel. It's, just, it's broken. It's just a tore-up piece of junk now. And, and somebody walked by and tried to console him and he was inconsolable and when somebody walked in they said well, what's going on what's, what's wrong he screams at them in rage and anger and said my wagon wheel is broken and I can't fix it he'd lost sight of what he was doing the inheritance that he was going to pick up could have bought him a fleet of wagons a team of horses not to mention a giant farm with tons of land but what happened is he lost sight rather than seeing what was to come he was too consumed with what was right in front of him and I'm telling you as we enter 2023 so many of us have a massive inheritance according to Ephesians there is an inheritance that's being held by the Holy Spirit as our guarantee and we are not rejoicing in the Lord over what's coming. We're wringing our hands in anguish over what's in front of us. And we're just, oh, I don't know what to do, Caleb. You don't know the problems. And I don't want to minimize the problems in your life. But I'm telling you, in, the ter- in terms of eternity, your momentary, as the scripture calls it, your momentary light afflictions will not be worth even comparing with what's to come. Amen? That's the truth. There is a foundational reason we've been called to rejoice as believers. I want you to understand that God's perfect work in the life of a believer changes our outcome. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 through 14 says, In Him you also 
When you'd heard the word of the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise and the glory of his name. Listen, so many of us are just like that man who received the good news and we get excited in the beginning and we get excited to step out into this. And we lose sight of what we're supposed to be doing. We get, we get sad over circumstances, whether it's a job, whether it's a relationship, whether it's money, whether it's something else in this life that's physical. We are allowing temporary circumstances to rob us of the peace that Christ has handed down to us in the mighty and powerful gospel of his word. Everything in this life for a believer is temporary. There is nothing that is permanent in this life for a believer. Listen, on this side of the grave, listen, for a believer, this is the, this is the worst it's going to get. This is, the, this is the worst right now on this side of the grave. So we have a lot of reasons to rejoice in the Lord because the Lord has supernaturally, sovereignly saved us from an eternity of death, hell, and pain. And that should cause us to get somewhat excited. Amen? Get, get a couple of you. Don't allow temporary setbacks to rob you of the eternal blessings that, that God has handed to you. And then Paul continues in Philippians. That, that's just the first couple of words in chapter in verse one we'll keep going verse two he says well he says this is a don't let this trouble don't don't let these things that i tell you there's no it's no trouble to me and it's safe for you he's telling you that to rejoice in the lord is a safe place to be it is a comforting place to be to rejoice in the goodness and the and the sovereignty of who god is And so Paul is about to tell them in the next several verses about some of the things that people can do, circumstances can do to rob them of their blessings, that can rob them of their peace, that can rob them of their ability to have rejoicing. Verse 2, look out for the dogs. Now he's not talking about his homies. He's not like, hey, what's up, dog? That's not what he's doing. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who would mutilate the flesh. In essence, he's saying, don't be fooled by false preachers. Paul calls men who teach a works-based gospel, a false gospel, dogs. And in that day, dogs were not pets. Like, we, like right now, we got Charlie. Charlie is a... Austin, what would you say Charlie is? <laughs> He's something. My wife loves him. I've never had a dog be able to sleep at the end of my bed in the 44 years, and pretty much the 44 years I've been alive. Charlie gets to sleep at the end of our bed now because Charlie is hypoallergenic. I don't know what that means. My wife doesn't sneeze. Something. Wally, did you let your dogs come in? No. Okay. Well, in this day and time, guess what? Dogs were not pets. Dogs were not things that people coddled and pet and played with. 
Many of them roamed the streets in wild packs and savage packs looking to overtake someone and steal what they had. They roamed the streets looking for ways to devour whatever they could get their mouths around. Whatever they could get. They'd get in packs and they would go and take because that's what dogs do. Even today. Dogs, if you, if you romp, get them in a pack, dogs can become dangerous in a pack. Because they can devour. And so Paul calls these false preachers, these false teachers, dogs. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. In fact, dogs were so reviled that the Jews would, that's what they called the Gentiles. Jews in this day looked at people like you and I that were Gentiles and said, there's dirty dogs. They're dirty dogs. And even today, some, one of the, a bad, you know, a dig at somebody's been, man, he's just a dirty old dog. Just a nasty, dirty old dog. You know, nobody likes to, nobody still likes to hear that. So Paul says that these, these false teachers who try to boost and push out the idea that you're saved by good works, that you're saved by being a good person, are dogs. I, I had the conversation with the man last night. The man is 38 years old, had never genuinely heard the gospel. His ideas were, I've got to do something to make God happy with me. And when I said, listen, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you're saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man should be able to boast. I said, Jesus is the one who does all the heavy lifting. You don't do any, all you do is that. I told him, I, I even sang it, I said, just trust and obey. That's what you're called to do as a, as, as, a, as a man is to trust the gospel that Jesus says what, he's, what he did was genuine. Just trust and obey. And he goes, man, that just seems really simple. And I said, it is. That's the simplicity of the gospel. But what we do, in, even in 2023, as in Paul's day, is we try to complicate the gospel and say we've got to do something to make God happy with us. Hogwash. You just got to repent of your sins and trust that God did all the heavy lifting. Trust God and what he did on the cross. So Paul calls these false teachers dogs. And then he goes a little bit further and he says, they're actually evildoers. He even, he, as he called them evildoers, he says, teaching that these men do these teachings, they're evildoers. They're evildoers. Teaching that men can be saved by their good deeds is actually a wicked thing to do. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. I'll read this in the New Living Translation because it has a little bit of a bite to it, so I like that. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our good, righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags in the sight of God. Like autumn leaves, they wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. It's got a little bit of a bite. That's, that's, what, that's your good works. In the sight of a righteous and holy God, your good works are an infection and an impure rag. So Paul says those who attempt to parade their good deeds and teach that you're saved by your good deeds, whew, they're dogs, evildoers, and worship a false god. They worship the false god such as Baal. 
by mutilating the flesh. Baal was a god that you worshipped, that you mutilated, cut your flesh up, and launched it into a fire. And oftentimes, we would, you'd launch your children into it to try to receive blessing. Ugh. What a horrible, horrible false theology. That's strong language to hear from, from Paul. Works-based salvation. Listen, I, told, I said this in Sunday school. Works-based salvation is a mockery to the mighty God of the universe. You're in essence spitting on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and saying, Hey, listen, I know, Jesus, you came to die on the cross. Let's just ask the question. Why did Jesus come to die on the cross? For what? Save you from your sins. So if you could do something of good works to be saved, you're in essence saying that what Christ did on the cross was useless. That's a dangerous place to say. That's a dangerous thing to say. That, listen, Jesus... I know you came to die on the cross for my sins and to reconcile and redeem me, but I'm going to do something good to get myself into a good standing with you, God. Hogwash. That's nowhere taught in the scriptures. And God, God through Paul, says that people that do that are dogs and evildoers. Woo! You can't be saved by your works. You're saved by grace through faith. Then Paul continues in verse 3, so let's keep reading in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in our flesh. Remember we're talking about mutilating the flesh? These people were saying you have, you've got you've to be circumcised in order to be really sealed in and saved by God. You've got to do this good work. You've got to be circumcised in order to get into the good graces of God. It's, and listen, this is what Paul says. In essence, put your hope in Christ. You put your hope in Christ. It's, it's Christ that we worship. By the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus, we put no confidence in my ability to work hard. I put all of my, all of my chips are pushed in on Christ Jesus alone. We put no confidence in our flesh. We, we, Push towards the idea that Jesus is the one who does all this. Like I said, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 echoes this, that you're saved by grace. Not by works, but by grace alone. That's it. Everything, everything about your Christian life is a gift from God. I need you to see this. Now listen, everything about your Christian life is a gift from God himself. Even, listen, the faith to believe in the grace of God was and is a gift that God generated and started. You didn't muster up one day and say, I'm going to have enough faith to believe. No, you did not. Read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith that none of those things are a gift. None of those things are things you do, but they are a gift that God hands to you and says, I'm going to give you the faith to believe the grace that saves you. I'm going to give you the faith to believe in the grace that saves you. All of this is a gift from God in order that God might receive glory. That's what I told TJ last night. I said, listen, brother, if you could work hard and achieve salvation somehow, who gets the glory out of that? He goes, well, I would. 
I'd get the glory. I said, right. So if God does all the heavy lifting and God does the thing and he sets everything up in front of you and he's the one who saves you, he's the one who gives you the faith to, to believe, who gets the glory out of that? He goes, well, Jesus does. I said, absolutely. Absolutely. Christ does all of this and he receives every ounce of the glory as he rightfully should. You did not do, you didn't wake up one day and muster up the ability to choose God. He actually is the one who chose you. How do I know this? John chapter 15 verse 16 says, You did not, this is Jesus talking, red letters, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, it will be given to you. He says, listen, I'm the one who came after you. I'm the one that came after you. I'm the one who pulls you in here. So that God receives the glory. And then Paul, just to make sure you understood your salvation is not by works, he tells the reader, listen, if you could be saved by works, I'd be a perfect example of somebody that would be saved by works. Let's keep reading in verse 4 through 6. Paul's like, okay, listen, just so you can understand, if you could be saved by works, it would have been me. It would have been me, Paul. If someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more reason to put confidence in my flesh. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of Hebrews. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews in regards to the law. A Pharisee. Listen, a Pharisee was somebody in that day that was viewed as this hyper elite religious that were so close to God. But God exposed them for who they were. Verse 6. As for zeal, I persecute. Listen, I did what I thought God wanted me to do by persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law and was faultless as we're in regards to all these things. So in, in other words, if anyone has a religious rock star status, it would have been Paul. Listen, Paul, you read through the book of Acts, Paul had special access to everything. That brother had access to all of it. Every single thing. He was in his day a religious rock star. If anyone could have been saved by his works, it would have Paul would have been the prime candidate. He did everything from the outside that seemed as if it was the thing to do to get into heaven. But he tells us this is not this is not how you get saved because it's Christ. It's Christ who makes the difference in my life. It's Christ who regenerates. It's Christ who awakens me. And then he goes on in verse 7 through 9 and he explains that Christ that that it that it's Christ and that he had nothing to do with any of it. Never. He says, look at this, verse 7. He says, all these things that I could have had, everything, everything, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for, who, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. 
He considers all of his religious rock star status as absolute filthy garbage compared to knowing and trusting in Jesus Christ. He says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Verse 9 says, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or from works, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God, not that comes from God on the basis of faith alone. My brothers and sisters, understand that works-based salvation is absolutely worthless in the sight of God. Paul calls the gains of his religiosity garbage in comparison to knowing and following and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to be found in Christ and, and to be given a righteousness that was not something that I mustered up, that, but that was given to me as a gift, as a surpassing worth. It is an absolutely stunning and surpassing worth. That you've, listen, that you and I sit here this morning, that we've been given salvation from the triune, the only triune God of the universe, outweighs every earthly gift and transcends everything that could be and cannot be measured. So everything that we can measure and everything that we cannot measure, Christ is better. Christ is more. And then, he, then, he, then in verse 10, he emphasizes this in verse 10, and he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may know Christ, that I may know him. And by knowing Christ on this level, he'd be willing to share in the same kind of sufferings that Christ suffered on this planet. That's what he... He's, I just want to know him. I want to intimately know him. I want to be connected with Christ in an intimate way. That's the idea that I may know him. That idea of know him is an intimate term. The way, the way husbands and wives know one another. How do you know your wife? How do you know your husband? You know every tiny, minuscule detail about their life. You know them intimately. To know Christ on that intimate level. And then to know the power of his resurrection. Woo. And as a result of that, I'm willing, Paul says, as a result of knowing Christ on this level, I am willing to suffer for Christ the way he suffered for me. Woo. Why? Verse 11 tells us that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Listen. Listen, there's coming a day. There's coming a day for us as believers in Christ Jesus that we will share in this type of resurrection. Listen, when you die, when you take your last breath here, that ain't it. And people, oh, when you die, that's just part of it. Just You're done. We're going back to the dust. We're going back to the dirt. No, you do not. Death is just the beginning for the believer. Now, consequently, death is just the beginning for the lost person too. But you're going to spend an eternity in the flames of hell and God's justice and wrath rather than experiencing an eternity of God's righteousness and, and peace and mercy. But for the believer, look at, listen to this. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Oh, listen to this. This is what's going to happen for those that are in Christ. Those that belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, Paul, Paul writes this. He says, 
But we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, about those who are dead, those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Listen, when we have a, a loved one who dies, when you have a loved one who dies in Christ, we don't grieve as if no hope. We grieve because we're sad for the loss of the moment, right? We don't grieve permanently and say, I'll never see dad again. I'll never see grandma again. No, those that are in Christ, you're going to see them again. We don't grieve as those who have no hope, for we have hope. Verse 14, for since we have believed that Jesus Christ died and was rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep for this We declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord, the Lord will precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from the heavens with a cry, with a command, with a shout of the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are alive and remain and are left will be caught up. Our podzo, this is where we get the word for rapture, will be caught up together with those in the clouds. Clouds means angels in this text. Did you know that? That's what cloud means. It means that angels will gather up those who are in Christ. Those that are dead, they go first. And in the twinkling of an eye, we will meet these loved ones in the air and meet the Lord in the air, and so we will also be with the Lord forever. This will be a great getting up morning, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I cannot wait. I'm, listen, I, this, is, this is exciting news. This is the hope we have. As we enter into a new year, this is what we hold fast to, is that one day Christ is coming for those that are eagerly longing for Him. He said, how do you know that, Caleb? Well, I'm glad you asked. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 27 through 28 says that, and just as it is appointed for man once to die. Listen, you have an appointment with this thing called death. And none of us in the room think we're dying. Not this year. Maybe the guy next to me, maybe my neighbor, maybe my coworker. Not me though, Caleb. None of us in this room have a promise that we're going to be back here January 2024. We just don't. There's an appointment for man wants to die. And after that comes the judgment. So Christ having been, verse 28 of Hebrews 9. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. He's not, the next time he appears he's not dealing with sin. But he's come to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly waiting for him. Listen, my friends, Christ is coming to take those who love him, who have repented of their sins and who have put their trust and hope in him and are eagerly waiting for him to come back. Are you eagerly waiting for King Jesus today? Are you eagerly waiting for King Jesus?